good to see everybody. Um, good afternoon. For those of you who don't know my name, it's Jonathan Ellis. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, I'm thankful for the opportunity to speak to you and honored that you would let me. Um, but the words of John Knox are very much on my mind when he said, I've never once feared the devil, but I tremble every time I step into the pulpit. But I'm not sure what is the cause, whether it's the fact that I've had we've got a two-year-old at the house, or two-week-old at the house, so we're a little light on sleep, or if it's the fact that I have it on good authority that I am less of a preacher and more of a teacher, um, or if it's uh, in the, uh, the words of Isaiah, he said, woe is me for I'm a man of unclean lips. I think it's more on that one. I don't think I'm as scared of you as I am the fact that it is aware of that it is a serious thing to uh, handle God's word in service to God's people. Um, and I'm wholly inadequate for the task, so would you please pray with me and for me that God would use a crooked stick to draw a straight line this afternoon. Um, Father, I am aware that I am a, a sinner redeemed by grace and that it is a serious thing to handle your word. Um, please protect me from error. Let us hear only your word and your truth. And if I say anything that isn't from you, that you would snatch it from the air before we leave. I pray that all of us, myself included, would leave today more like Jesus, speaking his words, um, doing his actions, and, and following in his footsteps. Please, it's in your son's name, amen. Our primary verse this afternoon is 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17. If you have your Bible, would you please turn there? And if you do not have one, our ushers uh, have some that you can use. Uh, if you don't own a Bible, please take the one that they're offering and take it home as our gift to you and read it. Um, but 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. This is God's word. This verse is very, very precious to me. And the reason I've chosen it for this particular Sunday is because in the last few months, Pastor Al and Pastor Alex have uh, shared with you many of God's uh, truths and passages from Scripture on how to withstand anxiety and fear and stress, um, how to flee false teaching, how to hold fast to truth. Um, and as they have demonstrated, uh, the primary weapon that we have in this fight is the Word of God, and it is a wise and biblical way for that they have taught you to fight because this is following the example of our Lord because when he was in the desert and he was tempted he could have very easily said to Satan um, by, by my virtue as the Son of God be gone but he didn't he said every time the enemy brought a lie against him he said it is written um, and I believe that the reason he was doing that is he was giving an example to his people he was teaching us how we were to respond um, so, for instance, last week, Alex, Pastor Alex talked about uh, the passage from Philippians on anxiety. So whenever you, in a circumstance, are being tempted to anxiety or worry, you, following our Lord Jesus' example, can say, um, I will not be anxious uh, for it, because it is written that in everything with prayer and supplication and thanksgiving, I'll make my request known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses understanding, will guard my hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And therefore... You can then walk about your day in that truth, walking on the power of that truth. What I wanted to talk about today is a little bit differently, because if you're Satan and you saw that a Christian has been armed, 
with the Word of God and you have been instructed to follow Jesus' example to resist temptation in this way, what would you do if you were Satan? Uh, I believe in this generation of the church, the, enemies, the enemy has responded to Jesus' arming of his disciples in this way with two tactics. The first is to undermine the Christian's confidence in Scripture by subtly convincing Christians that the Word is not fit to do battle with. The second is to simply convince the Christian that, that, that they are not in a war and so neglect the weapon God has given them. This might look like a person who suffers from anxiety being convinced that he just needs a change of circumstance um, rather than to wage spiritual warfare. But I'll address the second tactic more next week. This week I want to focus on the first. Let me repeat it. The enemy desires to undermine the Christian's confidence in Scripture by subtly convincing Christians that the Word is not fit to do battle with. And if I may use a metaphor, the enemy seeks to convince Christians that instead of a sword, that they hold a butter knife. He's not going to be so blatant as to simply come out and say, you don't hold a blade in your hand. If he was that obvious, you'd see through that. Instead, he just wants to convince you that the blade you have in your hand isn't suited for warfare. Does that make sense? He desires to convince you that the word doesn't have as much reliability or applicability as you thought. It isn't very sufficient for the real problems in life. What we're discussing in this space is pure theory uh, and has nothing once you has no use for you once you leave these doors. It's useless for the hard truths, the difficult seasons. It's more suited for making your life a little more comfortable in small ways, helping encourage you when you feel low, helping you achieve your own personal goals. And if Satan is able to gradually convince you of this, then one day you will find yourself on a battlefield of a difficult season in life, and you'll look down and see a butter knife in your hand because you've been convinced that's what is there, and you will surrender or you'll flee and give up. And that's my fear, and that's why we're going to talk about what we're talking about today. And let me, before jumping into the passages, give an example of how this plays out subtly and gradually in a person's life. Uh, a couple of years ago, before quarantine, we as a church did a thing called uh, pub talks. Uh, and Pastor Al each week would address a, a common objection that the world has to Christianity. And then throughout the week, we would meet in a public place and invite people to discuss. Uh, Christian, non-Christian, we wanted to hear from everybody and just talk openly. And at one of these meetings, uh, one, uh, a young lady, I, I, forgive me, I don't know her name, but we'll call her Anne for the purposes of this afternoon. Anne came to my table and we talked for about an hour and I very much appreciated Anne because she was, she was uh, straightforward and bold and we had a very good back and forth. Um, I, I, it was unclear if she grew up in a Christian house or if she associated herself with Christianity now. I tend to think she did not. Um, but it was clear that she disagreed with many of the teachings of the, the letters of Paul, where he calls homosexuality a sin or prohibits women elders. She made it clear that though he had, she acknowledged he wrote those things, uh, or that those were written in the letters of Paul, but she disagreed with them. She made it very clear. And, and so I, I, we, I was confused as to how. And then after about an hour, she made a very clear statement. She said, well, these are just Paul's opinions, and Paul was a product of his culture, and so his thoughts and words would have had the same biases, prejudices, shortcomings 
that the world around him had. Let me read that again because it was very clarifying. And she said, her view, which caused her to depart the church and disassociate with Christianity was, these are just Paul's opinions. And Paul was a product of his culture. And so his thoughts and words would have had the same biases and shortcomings that the world around him had. And this caused me to say, finally, something we can agree on. Because if the Bible is just a collection of thoughts and tales from old Jewish men and nothing more, then I agree with you. They should have no special significance or authority in our lives. And we would be free to disregard them or disagree with them and still call ourselves followers of Christ. But it is, that is not what Scripture proclaims itself. It calls itself the Word of God and testifies that it is given by God through the miraculous process of inspiration. And if that is true, then we must treat it differently from any other text or source of information. And I then asked Anne to define what she thought was meant by the phrase inspiration of Scripture. And she didn't have an answer. And our conversation took a very different turn after that as I proceeded to walk through the same passages that we're going to go through this morning that discuss Scripture's nature and the process of inspiration. That interaction with Anne has stuck with me. Obviously, it's tragic how far her definitions had strayed from those actually written in Scripture. But what is more tragic in my mind is the fact that she was unaware of it. She could not tell you what her view of inspiration was, yet she held one. And this view which she held and yet was unaware of drastically shaped her view of Scripture, even causing her to confidently disregard whole books of the Bible as somehow corrupted. And that is my fear for many in the church. I think she and many who call themselves Christians when asked, do you believe the Bible is the Word of God? They would say yes, but then they could not tell you what that means. They can't tell you what that means because they've not thought through these passages which might elaborate on the specifics of what that means. What does it mean when we say the Bible is God-breathed? And if your view has not been, uh, of Scripture has not been shaped and molded and founded upon the testimony of Scripture, then the world and the enemy will be happy to fill in those gaps with erosive, subtle, and false arguments. I'm sure many of you have heard examples of these. Those are just the opinions of some old Jewish men. Or, this is very popular, uh, that is what Paul believed, not what Jesus believed. You heard that? That is from the Old Testament law. Jesus didn't care about that. That was the God of the Old Testament. That is not what Jesus believed. As long as you intend well, it doesn't matter what the words of Scripture say. Jesus only symbolically rose from the dead. Arguing he literally rose from the dead misses the larger social message that the author intended. These are real arguments held by real people, many of whom sit in church pews, uh, teach at seminaries, or stand at pulpits. And they would not recognize the contradiction that these ideas have with the passages we're going to go through, and they would still claim they're following Christ. And my concern is if you, and particularly your children, have never learned what Scripture says about itself, then these types of subtle arguments, meritless though they may be, will gradually erode the foundation that you are called to stand on. And my fear is that one day you'll wake up and the ground underneath you will have seemingly disappeared. You'll find yourself in the middle of an article on deconstructing one's faith and you'll look down and where there used to be a sword in your hand, you'll see a butter knife and you'll think, oh my goodness, how did I think this was ever suited for war? 
and you'll surrender. However, my hope today is that by studying these passages, you will be able to see clearly and specifically how those false arguments fail and how you will be able to resist the erosion from these types of emotion-based appeals. So here's our main goal for today. I'm sure that some of you have heard of C.S. Lewis's famous trilemma that based upon the words of Jesus that you must accept him as either lunatic, liar, or Lord, his very words give you no other option. So what I would like to argue and present to you and convince you of today is what I'll call the scriptural dilemma. That based upon all that scripture proclaims about itself and its origins, you must accept it as either... One, a collection of writings ultimately attributable to and originating in the minds of men, in which case it has no transcendent significance or authority. Or two, it is the authoritative, infallible, sufficient word of God, which you must either submit to or rebel against. The words of Scripture give you no other option. And because I hope to persuade you that Scripture sufficiently testifies in this regard it's, uh, about itself, I will try primarily to appeal to Scripture, not the historical record or religious tradition. I'm appealing primarily also to Scripture because we desire to follow Jesus in all things. And when Jesus fought the lies of the enemy, He used Scripture to do so, as we've already examined, even though He had the option of doing otherwise. And I want, to, yeah, I want us to learn to do the same. So with all that being said, let's, move, let's begin by walking through the same conversation I had with Anne. What do you believe is meant by the inspiration of Scripture? The first thing I discussed with Anne was just, first of all, the fact that false views exist. I did this then and I do this now simply for the purpose of contrast and to demonstrate that there are many false views and that many who hold them may not even be aware that they're holding them or that other views exist or that the view they hold is contradicted by Scripture. So just, just to go through some, uh, these are not exhaustive by any means, but just some very quick discussions of some false views. The first is called the intuition view, and, and just how some people would suggest that there is a natural athletic ability or a natural um, artistic ability. This view would say that inspiration is nothing more than the Spirit bestowing upon you a natural ability to discern spiritual matters. Uh, some of the problems with this view is it's not exclusively Christian. So those who believe in this view would also say that Muhammad or Confucius would have been equally inspired. Also, the view would say that, that ultimately the origin of the words is, finds itself primarily in the minds of men um, and that the Spirit just gave some help to think through things. The second false view is called the illumination view. This could be uh, compared to how some uh, college students without ADD abuse Adderall, you know, just for one night of, of intense study. So that you just get a burst of inspiration, a burst of energy to discern through spiritual matters. Uh, and that's the extent of the Spirit's view in forming Scripture, or the, the influence of the Spirit in forming Scripture. The rest, it's just entirely up to man's ability. The third false view we'll look at is called the dynamic view. And this would see it as kind of a group project. You write a sentence, I write a sentence. Uh, usually people conceive of this as like a 50-50 partnership, but, but the percentages vary. But, but the reason I go through these is just to uh, demonstrate again uh, that, that false views exist. And the most common feature among them is, that the idea, is the idea that Scripture is primarily from men, or is it, it is at best an equal partnership. You hear this everywhere. It's the rallying cry of the deconstructionist and the liberal theologian, because if you can attribute the words primarily to men and not God, then you can disregard them. You can say they are corrupted and therefore need to be constructed and reconstructed. You can explain them away. 
If you hold to this view, you will get many likes on social media and the world will love you. But it's not what Scripture says about itself. So let's look at what Scripture says about itself. Let's return to the main passage. It'll be on the screen. 2 Timothy 3, 16-17. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. From this passage, I want to focus initially on two phrases. The first, breathed out by God, or in some translations, God breathed. This is in the Greek, the word theonistos. And the reason I give you the word is just to make a point that the word theonistos is found nowhere else in Scripture except this passage. It's a wholly unique concept. A writing set apart from any other writing. The other verses we're going to look at unpack what this word means. But right now, I just want to emphasize that Scripture proclaims itself as something wholly unique set apart from any other text ever written. Thus, when we read the Word of God, it should occupy a space of authority in our life that is wholly unique and set apart from any other authority. This was my first point to Anne. If the words of the Bible were not theonistos, then there is no reason for any of us to take them as uniquely authoritative. It's just one more book, one more collection of writings by fallible men. But if they are theonistos, then we have only two possible responses. We submit to the words of Scripture as ultimately authoritative because they are from God, not from men. Or we are free to reject them because they are from men, not from God. The second word from the passage I want to focus on is all. Do you know what the Greek word there means? It means all. <laughs> all. All Scripture is theonoustos. All Scripture is so that men, the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. I can tell by the lack of fanfare that, that the significance of this word is not fully appreciated. Uh, so how often have you heard the phrases like, Jesus never talked about X. That was the Old Testament, not Jesus. That was Paul, not Jesus. That was Moses, not Jesus. And they say that someone who makes this objection is saying this in an effort to argue that Jesus must not have held a stance on an issue, despite the words of Scripture clearly doing so elsewhere. Do you see why this type of argument doesn't work in light of the word all? When objections like these are presented, it reveals at least three things. Either the objector has a deficient view of Jesus' deity and the triune nature of God. Do you, do you see why? Because they are arguing that the words given by God the Son are of greater value than the words given by God the Spirit, utilizing human agency. Or worse, they are suggesting that there could be disagreement within the Trinity. They are suggesting that it's possible for God the Spirit to have a different mindset on something than God the Son. Do you see that? Or they disagree with Jesus' view of inspiration of Scripture in Matthew 22, 31-32, which we will elaborate on in a moment. Because in that passage, Jesus said, Have you not read what was spoken to you by God? If someone said that was Moses, not Jesus, Jesus would say that was, Mo that was not Moses, that was God. We'll look at that passage, as I said, more in a minute. Or the objector is aware of the logical and biblical inconsistency of the argument, but simply seeks to deceive you. The importance of the word all has a tremendous implication also for how you read the Bible. 
To demonstrate this, would uh, you read with me from Matthew 4, 5, and 7. And it'll be on the screen if you desire not to turn there. Matthew 4, 5, and 7, 5 through 7. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Um, just to give some background here, these are, this is the when Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert and was tempted uh, by Satan. Um, Jesus had previously responded to Satan's temptations by citing Scripture. So Satan here attempts to use Scripture as a part of the temptation. Satan cites to a passage from Psalm 91. Now, he clearly is twisting the meaning of that passage uh, to, in order to induce Jesus to act in a manner that would test God's faithfulness. But he does cite to Scripture. Oh, let's make that, let's recognize that. Jesus responds to Satan's citation of Scripture by citing to Deuteronomy 6.16. And pay, pay attention to what he is doing here. Jesus does not discount the authority of Psalm 91. He simply notes that a correct understanding of that passage requires examining it in light of all of God's revealed word. So he uses a passage from Deuteronomy to correctly understand a passage from the Psalms. I'm going to repeat that just because it's worth repeating. Jesus uses Scripture to correctly understand and interpret other Scripture. How could you read passages like this in a unified way, in a unified whole with equal authority. A passage from Psalm over here, Deuteronomy 6, Psalm 91 over here, Deuteronomy 6 over here. There is only one way, and that is only if there was one ultimate author, the Spirit, despite the Spirit using different people to write it. Um, and before moving on from this passage, I just want to pra- ask a practical matter. Um, do, you, do, you, do you recognize that? So Jesus recognized that you must use Scripture to correctly interpret other Scripture. Do you do that? Do you weigh certain portions of Scripture more heavily than others, more valuable than others, uh, more authoritative than others? Do you see the danger of doing so? And uh, how it can erode your faith in the value and goodness of all of God's Word? Or do you desire to follow the example of Jesus and read all of Scripture in concert? a unified whole from one ultimate author, using one passage over here to correctly understand and interpret another passage over here. Let's keep going. Uh, Two other passages that help us understand the concept of what Theonistos is and and what it is not. The first passage uh, that I want to look at in this regard is Matthew 22, 31 through 32. And it'll also be on the screen, but you can turn there if you like. Matthew 22, 29, oh, I'm sorry, 29 through 32. Uh, But Jesus answered them, you are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read, focus on that word, what was said, focus on that word, to you by God. I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. So who's speaking in this? It's Jesus. 
What is his specific phrasing here in this passage? Have you not read what was said to you by God? Generally, wouldn't the phrasing be, have you not read what was written by? Or have you not heard what was said by? But Jesus combines the two. He says, have you not read what was said? And then he cites to Exodus 3.6, a passage the audience would have understood to have been written down by Moses. But the most important thing I want to focus on is despite the fact that Exodus was penned by a man, Jesus ascribes ultimate authorship, ultimate origination of the book, not to men, but to God. Jesus does this despite the Spirit using human agency in the giving of His revelation. And that bears repeating. Jesus, the one we all say we follow and obey in all things, said that despite the fact that the book of Exodus was written by a man, Jesus ascribes ultimate authorship, ultimate origination of the book, not to men, but to God, despite the Spirit using human agency in the giving of His revelation. Jesus did not say, have you not read what was written by Moses? Jesus said, have you not read what was said to you by God? So when we think about what does God breathe theonostos mean, this passage tells us that Jesus' view of what it means is that the ultimate author of the text is God, not man. So before moving on to the next passage, let's give a practical impact here as well. Um, Notice what Jesus says, what was said to you, to you. Were the Pharisees Jesus was rebuking in this passage alive when Moses penned the passage from Exodus? No. Yet Jesus asserts that the passage was God speaking, quote, to you, to those Pharisees. Furthermore, Jesus rebukes the Pharisees for not having accepted the words of God in this way. For he says, you are wrong. You know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. He's holding them responsible for rejecting the fact that God had spoken to them, even though they weren't born when the passage was penned. So when people say to me, I just wish Jesus would talk to me, I point them to this passage. Beloved, God has spoken to you. When some say that Scripture was only meant for a particular people in history and doesn't apply to to us today, does that match what Jesus believed and taught in this passage? Have you ever said, I just wish Jesus would speak to me? He has. If you believe Jesus' view of Scripture is the correct one, He has spoken to you. And if this passage is any indication, He will hold you responsible for rejecting it as He held those Pharisees responsible for rejecting it. Let's look at one more passage which helps us understand Theonistos. Would you please turn with me to 2 Peter 1.21 and it will be on the screen as well. 2 Peter 1.21 For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of men, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. I love this passage because it states its point in the form of a negative. No prophecy was ever produced by the will of men, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Uh, When I was describing the false views of inspiration, what was the common unifying theme? It was that uh, the words were primarily attributable to men, not God. 
Um, or at least substantially, if not entirely. But in this passage, we see that cannot be the case. Let's read it one more time. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of men, man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The phrase carried along here is a single Greek word, pharaoh. And the reason I point that out is this same word is used in Mark 6.28 when he is describing the beheading of John the Baptist. In that passage, after Herod uh, orders that John is, be beheaded, it says the executioner brought, same word, Pharaoh, the head to Herod. How much contribution do you think that the severed head made towards its transportation? See why this word is so important. Um, as we attempt to draw lines around what is meant and what is not meant by Theonistos, um, and what it means for the concept of inspiration. We see from Matthew 6 that Jesus would believe it means that the words were ultimately ascribable to God and not to men. And we see from this passage in 2 Peter 1 that the contribution of men to the origination and authorship of Scripture could be compared to the contribution of a severed head to its transportation. In light of all these passages, do you still think that the alternative theories of inspiration I presented earlier are supported or disproved by Scripture. So in light of these passages and others like them, the orthodox view which the church has held throughout history is known as the plenary verbal theory of inspiration. Plenary just means complete in every respect and absolute. This view arises out of the same passages we've just walked through. And it says that the Spirit's influence in the process of inspiration is so great that the exact word God intended to use at each point is indeed used, but that God did utilize distinct personalities and writing styles in the individual writers who he chose and prepared beforehand. Um, let me repeat that. This view says that the Spirit's influence in the process of inspiration is so great that the exact word God intended to use at each point is indeed used. That is what is meant by Theonistos in 2 Timothy 3.16-17. Do you see why it's so important to establish this? Because the entire, again, going back to the, the point at the beginning, if you can say they're from men, you can say they're erroneous, they're corrupted, they're, they're subject to deconstruction because those men were, were, were products of a fallible nature and a fallible world. But you must read them differently with that view in mind. Um, what I've given you is not an exhaustive discussion of inspiration, though it may feel that way. Um, if you want a more fulsome explanation of the orthodox and biblical view, a good resource is the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy. Um, but let's remind ourselves why we're doing this exercise to understand what Theonistos is and is not. Um, it is important because if you believe the ultimate origin of Scripture is men, then it makes sense why you believe the text could be, as I said, corrupted. It allows you to say things like, I do not have to read these portions that make me feel uncomfortable as authoritative because these portions were simply reflections of cultural bias or prejudice or ignorance. But if you believe, as Scripture proclaims, that the ultimate origin is found in God alone, then that option to disregard, your, disregard what makes you feel uncomfortable is no longer available to you if you desire to call yourself a, dis a disciple of Christ. If you claim to follow Christ, you either have to, one, submit to what it says, or you have to recognize that you believe Jesus was mistaken when he asserted, 
Have you not read what was spoken to you by God? And if you believe Jesus was wrong in this regard, you are choosing to place your own judgment above that of Jesus. And, and let me be very clear. If you find yourself doing this, this is what that means. When you pick and choose what scripture you think is true or valuable or trustworthy, you are saying by your actions that you know better than Jesus how to view scripture. How to value scripture. How to handle scripture. And furthermore, by subjecting Scripture to your standards and your views, you've made yourself the ultimate authority. You've declared yourself as the ultimate arbiter of truth and not God or the Word that He gave to you. Okay, let's take a breath and move on to another topic that also we won't be able to cover exhaustively. But it's, it's, the, the, it's important as we understand what, what is meant by Theonistos. And those are, that's the topic of the canon or the preservation of of God's Word. So, so far we've seen that, that Scripture is wholly unique and that its origin is ultimately found in the will of God, not man. Furthermore, we've seen that because Scripture is wholly from God, its authority is given by its very nature, not from an external secular source. Let me repeat that as we go into the next topic or series of topics. Because Scripture is wholly from God, its authority is given by its very nature, its inherent authority as Theonistos not from an external secular source. And this point is important for us to consider because another recent way that the enemy has sought to sow uh, doubt and, and confusion in the church is regarding the subject of, as I've said, the canon or, the, or preservation of God's word. And the attack normally comes in the form of an argument like this. You don't even know what scripture would be except for the decree of men. This argument suggests that Scripture's authority is granted because an external body of men declared them as authoritative and therefore the authority of Scripture is only as good as the authority and ability of that group. This argument would normally come from one of two sources. The first comes from atheists who might say, you wouldn't even know what Scripture is except that Constantine and a council of men at Nicaea arbitrarily decided which books were in and which books were out. And I encourage you personally to look up the decrees of Nicaea. Um, uh, the, 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 the meeting in 325, not the others. Uh, but that's what they're referring to is, is the, the Council of Nicaea of 325 because the idea simply has no basis in historical record or reality. It was a myth that's existed for a very, very long time but had a period of resurgence about 20 years ago uh, because it was put in a fiction book that was widely read. And it has now just simply been so mindlessly re repeated in the last 20 years it's taken by fact, even by otherwise highly respected scholars. But the fact of the matter is you can look them up in five minutes online. And not a single one of the decrees that came out of that Council of Nicaea has a, th a thing to do with what book is in and what books are out. So because it's an argument based on a fictional writing, we're not going to give it much consideration. But the second form of attack uh, that is worth discussing as we continue to think about the implications of Theonistos uh, usually comes from those seeking to establish a competing authority above Scripture. So, for example, when some in the, Catholic, the Roman Catholic Church might argue that the authority of Scripture is contingent upon an external authority of sacred tradition, the argument like, might look something like this. The only reason you have an authoritative canon is because the Roman Catholic Church said it at the Council of Trent in the 1500s and declared it then as authoritative. As I said, my goal is to give you tools primarily from Scripture, so let's look at a couple of passages on why this type of reasoning is inconsistent with Scripture. First, would you read with me 2 Peter 
3, 15 through 16. And, and this also will be on the screen. 2 Peter 3, 15 through 16. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. The other scriptures. Notice what Peter is not doing here. He is not saying, by the authority vested in me, I declare certain writings of Paul as authoritative scripture and expecting the reader to bow down to his declaration. Rather, Peter is recognizing something innate in certain writings of Paul that put them on the same level as, quote, other scriptures. Because there were scriptures at the, at the first century when this was written down. It was the Septuagint. But, but the point being that, that he's recognizing something innate in the writings of certain, certain writings of Paul that put them on the same level as these other scriptures. Some feature that is present in the, uh, the writings that by its presence makes these certain writings to be considered as authoritative as the other scriptures. And we've already discovered what that something is, isn't, haven't we? Theonistos. What makes a writing authoritative is whether or not it is theonustos, and the moment God breathes it out is the moment it is authoritative. Independent of any recognition by any man, or regardless of whether you acknowledge it as such or not. I'm going to repeat that also. What makes a writing authoritative is whether or not it is theonustos. And the moment God breathes it out, it is authoritative, independent of any recognition by any man or regardless of whether you acknowledge it as such or not. And at this point, you may then say, but Jonathan, what if fallible men will recognize the wrong canon? Or what if the word is corrupted through its continual transmission of history? I think I heard one of you whisper that. I'd point you to three passages and they'll all three be on the screen, but they're all worth reading. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. John 10, 27. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose, and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Isaiah 55, 11. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Matthew 5, 18. Think of the breadth of these assertions. Not one iota, not one dot will disappear from the law. My word shall go out and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. God could not make these assertions unless he was as involved in the preservation and transmission of his text as when he originally gave it through the miraculous process of inspiration. Okay. Let us return to 2 Timothy 3.16-17 and review its implications for one more very important doctrine, the sufficiency of Scripture. Um, let's read it again. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. For the rest of our time, we're going to talk about the second half of this passage. Scripture is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. This passage is, is one of the central passages that the church has used throughout history um, as the basis for what is known commonly as the doctrine of sufficiency, biblical sufficiency. 
There's a great amount of confusion surrounding this doctrine, what many people met, and many people misrepresent it. So here's a good, simple, basic definition by Wayne Grudem. The sufficiency of Scripture means that Scripture contained all the words of God He intended His people to have at each stage of redemptive history, and that it now contains everything we need God to tell us for salvation, for trusting Him perfectly, and for obeying Him perfectly. And the reason I want to end our time talking about this doctrine is first because it is formed primarily from many of the passages, passages we've already talked about today, but second because frequently Satan attempts to undermine confidence in the power of Scripture by attacking this doctrine. Two common attacks, arguments against it would say, okay, Scripture is valuable, but it's only one truth among many. You can't set it up as the standard against which all others are measured for there are many equally valid sources which we must also consider in concert with Scripture. That's attack number one. Attack number two says, okay, Scripture is valuable, but it isn't exhaustive. You must supplement it with other sources of information in order to know how to be just or kind or merciful. Scripture alone is not a sufficient ultimate authority because it is incomplete and not everything should therefore be measured against it. Both of these attacks are attacks, as I've said, upon the, this doctrine of sufficiency. So let us look again to our main passage in order to see how both of these arguments fail. Um, let's look again at the end, the second half. The scripture is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. I think many people... And, and I'm guilty of this too sometimes, when, who sit in church pews, if they had a magical red pen, would scratch most of this out. And they would say, Scripture is profitable for encouragement and affirmation only full stop. That's thinking Scripture is a butter knife. That's not what this passage says. What does it say? It says for teaching. In other words, how we are to think and act on a particular issue. Most secular wisdom would say that truth is inside of you or dependent upon your feelings or circumstances. Scripture doesn't affirm that. And if you follow Christ, you are not to believe that. Rather, Scripture says that apart from God's wisdom, you are ignorant of how to act and think in a way that pleases God and that Scripture can cure that ignorance. For reproof, the Greek word there means bring to the point of conviction. That means to help one get to the point that they can admit that they are wrong on a given area and that they need to change. For correction, the word used there means to, store, to restore to a right state. So the word of God is for those who have come to a wrong state, a broken state. Doesn't that fit with what, with what Jesus said? I've not come for the healthy, but for the sick. It can, the Word of God can make right what has been broken. For training in righteousness, the word for training here is the same word the Apostle Paul uses elsewhere for physical training. The point being that Scripture will teach us how to discipline our behavior and our thinking because we need it. So that we may live lives, future, the future of our lives differently from how we lived our past lives. Differently from where we were when God found us in our sin. Are these how you use Scripture? Just take a minute. Or do you use it only to affirm and encourage? 
Let's look at some of the unifying features of all four of these uses. And I see two unifying features. First, they all assume that there is a way through life that is correct and one that is incorrect and that theonoustos is that which is able to help us know which is which. Second, this passage assumes that the Christian is in need of frequent course correction. And we see both of these points affirmed in Acts 17, 10 through 11. This also will be on the screen. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Notice what's happening here. This group of people received direct teaching from an apostle. He was was right there in front of them and was teaching. And yet, they compared it to Scripture in order to determine if what he was teaching was true or not. The exact words, it says, examining the Scriptures daily to see if these things were so. They were subjecting the direct words of an apostle to Scripture to determine if they were correct or not. And Scripture calls them more noble for it. Do you do that? Do you allow Scripture to correct you, to rebuke you, to train you in this way? Do you subject every teaching and thought to Scripture in order to see if these things were so? Even if an apostle were in front of you speaking directly to you, Scripture would commend you if you do. So let's look at the second attack now. uh, This frequent attack on scriptural sufficiency. Let me repeat it. Okay, Scripture is valuable, but it isn't exhaustive. You must supplement it with other sources of information in order to know how to be just or kind or merciful. Scripture alone is not a sufficient ultimate authority because it is incomplete and not everything should therefore be measured against it. I want to contrast this lie with the final words from our main passage. And those words were that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And let's focus on that phrase that the man of God may be complete. The person who presents the second argument must assert that complete means something other than complete. If you're doing a puzzle and it is complete, is there a piece missing? No. Um, That's ridiculous. If the puzzle is complete, then no additional piece is necessary. Therefore, if the word is sufficient to make you equipped, or complete, equipped for every good work, then nothing else is required. So, so the takeaway from this, in order to speak truthfully about the fallen human condition and to identify and repent of sin, you don't need Freud or Jung in order to be complete, just Scripture. In order to obey God regarding matters of productivity and personal worth, you don't need Ayn Rand or Jocko Willink to be complete, just Scripture. In order to obey God regarding matters of justice and righteousness, you don't need Ibram Kendi or Kimberly Crenshaw or Derek Bell Jr. to be complete. Just Scripture. Do you see the breadth of the assertion by saying Scripture is that which makes you complete? Um, And let me give you a practical application again of, of just what this word should teach us and the danger of believing that other sources are necessary to follow and be like Jesus. This is not where I usually serve. Most of the time I prefer one-on-one conversations or group settings, but many times in small group discussions, um, this has happened so often, I've heard someone say something like this, if only I could hear directly from God, if only He could speak in some other way to me, then I would believe, then I'd be persuaded. If only I had some more information from a different source 
then I could trust God and obey all that He has for me. All I have is Scripture. And that makes it hard for me to trust and obey Him. I need Him to explain His reasoning more. Do these thoughts sound familiar? And if so, would you turn with me to one more passage, I promise. Uh, Luke 16, 27 through 31. And again, it will be on the screen. And this is the last one, so hang in there. Jesus addresses this type of attitude directly in his account of Lazarus and the rich man. In this account, the rich man in agony in hell pleads to Abraham, send Lazarus to warn them so they will not come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said. But if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. And he said to him, if they will not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Jesus is giving this account. Jesus says that if you won't be guided and taught by the word of God, then you won't be guided and taught, even if someone rose from the dead and told you the same thing. Beloved, think of the weight of that. If you won't believe, even if someone from the, rises from the dead to tells you, and tells you, do you really think that your greatest need right now is some fleshly new thoughts from some worldly teachers? Do you really think that the, that's the missing piece to start following Jesus? Obeying Jesus? Acting like Jesus? Just one turn of phrase or bit of rhetoric from someone who was born 20 years ago? That's the missing piece? Jesus didn't think so. Okay, let's take a breath. Um, that was a lot. But at the same way, as I've said, this... A lot of these topics you could have a weekend conference on and it's still on each of them and it still wouldn't be enough. So I'm, I'm aware that we've only scratched the surface. I'm under no illusions that we could exhaustively discuss everything. And we'll talk more about some practical thoughts next week. But as we end our time, I wanted to address why I dragged you into this series of topics. Um, I dragged you in, first of all, because my heart breaks for people like Anne. People who believe there may be some good in Scripture, but have had it so eroded by deconstruction, postmodernism, and fear of men, they couldn't tell you anymore exactly what that good is. So perhaps you, like Anne, fall into one of the following categories. First, you don't claim to follow Christ, but perhaps you're here today because you think there might be some useful things in the Bible, because why would a book stick around for thousands of years if there wasn't some inherent value to it. Or maybe you grew up in a Christian household and at one point in your life you thought Scripture was fairly authoritative, but the arguments since then that you've heard have eroded its role in your life. You still think there might be some value, but you're not sure what, you, what that is. You couldn't, couldn't put bookends around it. And you've never considered what Scripture proclaims about itself. Or perhaps you claim to follow Christ, but you don't think that Scripture is sufficient to make you, quote, complete for every good work. You think it must be supplemented with other contemporary writings or valuable teachings in order to be, quote, complete like Jesus. If you're any of these, then I want you to know first that Jesus loves you and he's saying, follow me. He is saying to you, as he said to the Pharisees in Matthew twenty-two thirty-one, have you not read what was spoken to you by God? God was speaking to you through Moses. God was speaking to you through the prophets. God was speaking to you through the apostles and He's speaking to you through His Son. Hear Him. 
while there's still time. Don't think that something more convincing is coming. For what did Jesus say in Luke 16.31? He said, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. And if you're here today and you call yourself a Christian, my hope for this message is slightly different. I hope you will see three truths that these passages have for you. First, because Scripture is the Word of God, a Christian must recognize that objective truth exists and it is unaffected by personal experience or good intentions. You are not therefore free to say my circumstances are severe enough that I am justified when I disobey Scripture's command to not be anxious, for example. Or, my circumstances justify lying in order to spare my friend's feelings, even though I know this path will ultimately hurt my friend. Your personal moral compass, just to be clear, is wholly insufficient to guide you. Only Scripture can. This is made clear in Romans 7, 7, when Paul says, inspired by the Word, by the, by the Spirit, he says, if not for the law saying coveting is a sin, he would not know that it was a sin. Therefore, please hear this again. Scripture is to be trusted over your own personal experience, circumstances, and feelings. The second point for the Christian, because Scripture is the Word of God, it is supremely authoritative in the Christian's life, and it is the standard against which all other competing sources of information and authority must be measured against, even personal experience. So I would ask you to ask yourself, do I have the attitude of the Bereans? To that end, I hope you do not take anything I've said today at face value. Um, I hope you will take everything I've said and examine the scriptures to see if these things are so. And I, how much? And you're told to do this for any any thought, um, whether and even if an angel speaks to you. How much more should you think critically about what any person says to you? Um, I love Pastor Al and Pastor Alex, but I hope and I'm sure they would agree uh, and say the same that you compare everything that they say against scripture and any teacher you listen to. Do you compare your favorite theologian, your family members, your favorite authors, your favorite politician, your own thoughts to Scripture? Scripture would call you more noble for it. And third, because Scripture is the Word of God, it will sustain you, and without it, you will starve to death. Scripture says twice, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Do you believe that? Does your approach to consuming the word reflect if you believe it? I think most Christians in America, to be honest, are at risk of starving to death because we don't consume the word with the seriousness that Jesus says we must. And I count myself in this. We take far more information from news or social media than God's word. And I think often that's why we are overcome with anxiety and depression and fear. Um, so we'll just ask practically, how often do you eat physical food? Daily? Multiple times a day? I believe J Jesus gave us this characterization very intentionally in order that we would know how seriously we are sustained by the Word and that without it we will perish. And I beg you, don't make this sermon or the Sunday sermon you hear on Sunday your only meal throughout the week. You should be feasting throughout the week such that if this is a nice dessert or a pleasant appetizer, and, and I'll speak frankly, I think that's why a lot of people church hop. They're placing such a tremendous burden on Sunday sermon that it was never meant to bear. You aren't meant to eat once a week. 
I know I've talked about a lot, but I want to equip you for war because we are in one. You have a weapon. It is strong. Furthermore, it will change how you walk through life. Proverbs 12.25 says, Anxiety weighs down a heart, but a good word makes it glad. There is hope and power and strength in the Word of God. It is quick and powerful. Sharper than any two-edged sword. Piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow. And discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Be confident, therefore, on the ground on which you stand and fight. You are fully and sufficiently equipped to do so if you are doing it with the Word of God. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for Your Spirit. God, You have said that as we behold Jesus, we are transformed from one degree of glory to another and the only place we can see Him is in Your gift of Scripture. Thank You. Let us leave here more like Christ. Being about His business, having His heart, speaking His words, being His hands and feet in a world that desperately needs Him and we desperately need just to take a breath just to not offend You in a single minute. We can't do it apart from You. Please, let Your Word accomplish all that it is intended to, and we are confident that it will. Let us leave here with a correct view of Your Word and renewed confidence in what it is capable of, even though it is wielded by a group of redeemed sinners, because that's all any of us are. We can do nothing apart from You. But with You, we can transform the world. Help us to do that and advance Your kingdom. We love You so much. Forgive us where we failed You. It's in Your Son's name. Amen.